1: Welcome to Season 4, Episode 27 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 1 of a four-part case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Wild Park is an area of land several miles from Brighton's coast. Within that park stands a wooden bench and a brass plaque inscribed with the names of two little girls. When the bench was built it sat between two maple trees that were planted in their memory. Karen and Nicola were only nine years old when they were murdered. The investigation to bring their killer to justice would take over three decades, and the toll it took on those involved was unimaginable. A failed trial, divorce, death from a broken heart, a change in the law, unfounded accusations of abuse, and all while the girl's killer was in prison for a separate, albeit near-identical, crime. This is the case of The Babes in the Wood. late afternoon of Thursday, October 9th, 1986, nine-year-olds Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway went outside to play after school. The pair attended different schools, though their families lived on Newick Road in the area known as the Malls-Cooma Estate, on the northern outskirts of Brighton, located on the south coast of England. Karen lived with her parents Michelle and Lee and younger sister Lindsay. She had an older brother Darren, though he was living away at a boarding school at the time. A few doors down, Nicola, or Nikki to her family and friends, lived with her mother Susan, father Barry, her brother Jonathan, and grandmother Mabel. The family also had a lodger Douglas or Dougie Judd. Nicola was described as being the more chatty of the two young friends, often speaking her mind. Karen, on the other hand, was more reserved. Nicola arrived home from school around half past three that Thursday. She was wearing a pink and brown v-neck sweatshirt, a brown and white checkered skirt, red shoes, but no socks or coat. Her long white socks had been removed when she got in. Her clothes had been cleaned and had been washed the previous day. Karen's mother Michelle was visiting the fellow's home with a friend, as she knew Nicola's mother Susan. But as Michelle's daughter would also be coming home from school, she left. 16-year-old Marion Stevenson, her older boyfriend, and Marion's friend Tracy Cox had also called at the property. They were looking for lodger Dougie Judd. Nine-year-old Nicola answered the door and told them Dougie was not in as the trio left and Nicola shouted at Marion. The two were not on the best of terms, and Nicola was quick to let someone know if she didn't like them. It is important to note that neither Marion Stevenson, her friend Tracy Cox or Marion's older boyfriend entered the property or had any physical contact with Nicola at this point. Around the same time, 4pm, Karen Hadaway dressed in her school uniform of a green long-sleeve sweatshirt, a t-shirt, a pleated skirt and school shoes arrived home. Soon she left, walking to a local sweet shop and wasn't more than 20 minutes. When she returned, her mother had noticed Karen was not wearing her school jacket and had changed her footwear. She was now wearing a pair of pink trainers. Although young, Karen took her personal hygiene seriously, showering or bathing in both the morning and evening. A school uniform was washed weekly by her mother, who had done so earlier that week. When she left home that afternoon for the second time, she was told by her mother that dinner was in the oven and not to be long. Karen headed to the home of her friend Nicola Fellows, only a few doors away. The two girls were playing in the front garden of a neighbouring property as Nicola's father Barry and mother Susan watched on through the window of their Brighton home. The parents' concentration lapsed, but in that moment the children disappeared. Hand in hand, Nicola and Karen then walked to a footpath under the A270 Lewis Road towards Wild Park, a local beauty spot. The park forms part of the South Downs. As they were playing, the girls started to climb a large tree near the road opposite some shops, but park keeper Roy Dadswell told them to climb down as they would hurt themselves. This was approximately 5.15pm. A member of the public, Albert Barnes, was walking his dog at this time and knew the park keeper. He watched on as Dadswell spoke to the girls for around five minutes before they continued playing in Wild Park. The girls then returned in the direction of home, walking towards the estate playing outside a fish and chip shop around six fifteen PM on Barkham Road, which runs parallel with the A two hundred seventy, overlooking the park, and only a short distance from Newick Road where they lived. As dusk fell, A teenager, Michelle Tippett, who knew the girls, told them they should be getting home because it would be dark soon. Michelle Tippett remembered Nicola saying to her friend Karen, Come on, let's go over to the park. Another schoolboy spotted the girls around Lewis Road near the bus stop at approximately 6.30pm. The pair were each seen eating fish and chips. This was the last time anyone would see them alive. The children's parents started to wonder where they were. Around 5.20pm, as Karen Hadaway was still not home, her mother began to call around the neighbouring properties. When her daughter still hadn't turned up, Michelle went to the home of Susan Fellows, Nicola's mother, who also began to look for them. It was unusual for them to be gone so long as they barely knew how to cross the street and were scared of the dark. Frantic, the parents went to the house searching every property where the girls could have visited. During the search, the two mothers bumped into Wayne Mieser, a 14-year-old neighbour. Wayne said he had seen Karen in Wild Park talking to the park keeper. The police were alerted by Michelle Hadaway at 8.30pm as the children's parents were becoming understandably distraught. I thought my little
2: and they gone up to her friend. Mm-hmm. It's not like her to go you know, too far away unless she's going usually to a friend's house. And who am I speaking to now, Mrs? Hadaway. Hadaway, H A D A W A Y. Right, yeah. Who's the other mother? She's... Uh, Mrs. Streeter. Uh, sorry, Mrs. Fellows. Right, and they're two nine year old girls. Two nine year old Any idea what
1: they were wearing? Yeah, was wearing. No time was wasted with foot patrols scouring the estate, searching outhouses and gardens. But the girls were nowhere to be seen. News quickly spread throughout Moolscoom. Members of the community mobilised and began to search Wild Park, but a heavy fog cast a veil over the grassland, impeding their vision. Shortly after midnight, around 12.30 or so, a group of locals were scouring an area near to Malscombe Railway Station, between a footpath and the station platform. While searching through some thick, dense grass alongside a footpath leading into the Hollingdean area close to Stevens Road, the light from their torches struck upon an object. It was an item of clothing, a blue crewneck sweatshirt bearing the word Pinto in small white writing. It was inside out, almost as if it had been disregarded by someone. Also, it was dry to the touch. Surprising as the grass was wet with dew. The search party did not deem the jumper significant at the time, as it did not match the items of clothing the girls were expected to be wearing. And besides, it was too big, so they left the sweatshirt draped over a fence close to where it was found. An aerial search was conducted utilizing a police helicopter. 150 officers came together with the missing girl's family and friends, searching well into the night and the next day. Michelle Hadaway was interviewed at the time about her daughter's disappearance.
2: If she's with someone that she knows, they'd bring her home. If she's with someone she don't know, they've got her by force. There's no way she would go with anybody. She knows the dangers.
1: Unrelated to the search... Around three thirty on the afternoon of Friday, october tenth, a day after the girls went missing, an engineer from the Southeastern Electricity Board was walking toward an electricity substation near the Mulscomb railway station. Robert Gander spotted a blue sweatshirt on a grass verge. He picked up the item of clothing which had the word Pinto written on it. Now illuminated by the daylight, He could see the chest and right sleeve appeared to be stained red, with what looked like spray paint. The top also smelt strongly of body odour. The engineer took the clothing to the electricity substation, where he called the police. The sweatshirt was bagged up and taken into evidence. In that late afternoon of Friday, October 10th, 1986, in the thick undergrowth, half a mile from their homes, the bodies of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway were found. They were lying close together, in vegetation behind the Wild Park Pavilion, around 30 to 40 yards from the outskirts of Wild Park. Karen's head was resting on Nicola's lap. 14-year-old Jonathan Fellows, brother to Nicola, was part of the search party when he heard the news that two bodies had been found. In streams of tears, he ran to his parents to tell them of the news. His mother Susan collapsed when her son told her of the discovery. It was reported that Kevin Rowland and Matthew Marchant, two teenagers from the Molescombe area, had found the bodies. Marchant was exhaustively questioned by police over the course of five hours before he returned to his home on Newick Road. As the press descended on the Moolskum estate, neighbours were comforting the grieving families. One local who remained nameless was interviewed. They said, No one ever thought they could come to any harm outside their own front doors. This has devastated us all the mother to one of the teenagers who made the discovery, addressed reporters telling them, Matt was very shocked when he found the bodies. He was trying to watch the helicopter flying above the park. He and Kevin walked up the hill, decided to take a shortcut through some undergrowth and stumbled across the bodies. At the time, the police chose not to release any information about how the girls died. Around 40 minutes after the discovery, a police photographer Mark Baines arrived at the scene. He would later recall in a statement, climbing up a steep grassy bank towards a wooded area. The girls' bodies were deep in the undergrowth and the location was difficult to get to. He noted there appeared to be only one way to get to the location where they had been left. Post-mortems took place the same evening the girls were found and was completed by Dr. Ian West at Brighton's Royal Sussex County Hospital. It was confirmed that the girls had eaten fish and chips. Dr. West had arrived at the scene and initially observed Nicola on her back with her left arm by her side. Her right arm was flexed across her chest. She was fully clothed although her left hand was resting close to a jumper and some underwear. These later turned out to belong to Karen, who was lying face down. Her right arm was extended over Nicola's body, and her head rested on Nicola's abdomen. Although she was not wearing any underwear, she seemed to be otherwise fully clothed. Dr. West concluded, Nicola and Karen's injuries were consistent with manual compression of the neck by the use of the hand or hands, causing an obstruction of their airways and the blood supply to their brains. Loss of consciousness could have been rapid for Nicola, but death would not have been immediate. Based on the injuries found on Karen, Dr. West believed that she would not have lost consciousness as quickly. Scientific tape was used to gather evidence from their clothing and bodies. The following day, the police revealed to the public that the two young girls had bruises around their necks and had been manually strangled to death. There appeared to be signs of sexual assault. There was no indication they had been bound. Nicola's underwear was on inside out. Peter Kennett, an inspector with Essex Police, spoke with the press and told them, If someone had killed two girls for no reason, there is every possibility that he is going to do it again. We are looking for a vicious, callous murderer. He killed these two girls without any obvious motive. Families in the area were warned to accompany their children at all times when leaving their homes. there had been reports of a man in a blue-coloured saloon style car trying to lure young girls into his vehicle in Brighton. This matched the description of a car spotted near where Nicola and Karen were last seen. Witness accounts also placed the man outside schools, attempting to pick up children. Other sites where he had been seen included the village of Rottingdean and the areas of Lewis and Newick in East Sussex. The man, believed to be in his mid 20s, was described as having thick glasses with blonde or ginger hair. Parents of children in those areas were notified. A young boy had seen Nicola and Karen alive outside the shops on Thursday, and the boy had also spotted a blue car which seemed to match the vehicle mentioned at the other attempted abduction sites. However, there were few clues which pointed to a suspect. An officer stressed that there was no definitive reason to link the murders to any other crimes at this stage. (music) Members of the estate came together to form the Wild Park Tragedy Appeal and along with shopkeepers, pulled what money they had to provide the girls with a funeral. They had raised around £3,000, and also offered a reward for any information that might lead to the arrest of the person or persons responsible. Ray Brindley, a friend to Nicola's father, spoke with a reporter from the Observer newspaper. He said, Barry Fellows told me how he went to the morgue to the official identification. He said she was just lying there in a silk dress with a bunch of flowers clutched to her chest, and he broke down in tears. Both fathers are unemployed, and we want to be able to raise enough money to give the girls a decent funeral. This is a very rough estate, but it is a community. Everyone is so shocked and angry about this. Some of the money raised would later go towards the construction of a memorial bench in Wild Park, along with planting two maple trees either side to commemorate the two young lives, tragically cut short At Morscombe Middle School this morning the local
2: priest Father Peter Smith spoke to the bemused youngsters telling them he'd been comforting the dead girl's families he fears the worst of the grief is yet to come once the shock fades away Then I think uh, the people will know their real sorrow, their real loss and they will be fully conscious of it and God help them to get over it. They had a special stranger danger talk from the local policeman, PC McIntosh. We can't tell what strangers are. We've got no markings. They don't look any different to what we do. So they've just got to to learn and find out for themselves. It could be a friend from next door, it could be down the end of the road. There's no markings on what a stranger
1: is. As the investigation continued, it was reported that Nicola and Karen may well have been abducted from a local playing field before they were killed. A witness sighting placed them at a playground in Willard's Field, only a short distance from where they would later be found. While this theory did not marry up with the witness sightings, gossip was widespread, and a complete timeline of the children's movements had yet to be completed. In a crowded service, held in remembrance of Nicola and Karen, residents and the officers investigating the deaths paid their respects at the Church of the Holy Nativity. The Reverend Michael Porteous told mourners, We are bewildered by the evil and violence in our midst, the evil and violence that caused these deaths. The Reverend made an appeal for calm, as feelings ran understandably high. Both Nicola and Karen's parents were too distraught to attend. The Reverend asked for prayers to support them through the horror of their terrible experience. Eric McIntosh, an officer with the local police force, who often patrolled the estate on foot, remembered Nicola. He told those in attendance, She always had a smile on her face and would come up and talk to me and take my hand with a big grin. I'm grieving and I feel very sorry for the parents. The officer acknowledged that some people don't feel comfortable talking to the police, but said now was the time. We need to talk to each other. Outside the service, a large group of children were playing, and there did not appear to be an adult close by. Eric McIntosh asked that during this time, with the killer on the loose parents needed to make sure they knew where their children were. Nicola's father, Barry Fellows, spoke to the media in a press conference. He told reporters that there would be no way the children would go off with a stranger. Detectives working the case who were still appealing for information voiced the opinion that the girls might have known their attacker. Detective Chief Superintendent John McConnell addressed reporters.
2: From Premier inquiries, it would seem a distinct possibility that the murderer was known to the two girls. This would be one explanation as to how both girls were inveigled into the wild park. This may mean that the murderer lives on the Moleskuma estate or close by, but of course... We are keeping an open mind on this line of inquiry.
1: Barry Fellows hoped that his daughter did not know her killer. In an emotional interview, in which he described being told about what had happened, Barry wondered what must have gone through their minds when the young girls died. He said, To find out they were strangled, can you imagine a child sitting there watching her friend getting killed? What could it do to her? It's terrible, isn't it? Nicola's father told reporters at that moment when he found out what had happened, if he were with the person responsible, he would have killed them. Barry told reporters about how his wife Susan reacted to the news. When she
2: was first told, she just screamed. You know, I mean screamed. I collapsed over at the wild park. Oh, I was just a heap, took about four or five people to hold me back. I wanted to go get him then, uh, if I could find him. And then later on in the week, well, later on the following day, I was told they were sexually assaulted. Now this isn't late by the way. They were just sexually assaulted. And uh, I was, oh, if I could have got him, then I'd have killed him.
1: Barry Fellows also spoke about the events only days earlier when he had to identify his daughter's body. She was lying there with a little bunch of flowers. She looked like she was asleep. I couldn't believe it. She was my little darling, my little sweetheart. Warning other parents about the dangers, he said, My message is that when darkness starts to fall, grab your children and take them indoors. with tears still fresh on her cheeks. Karen Hadaway's mother Michelle, who also spoke at the press conference and was six months pregnant at the time, had to tell her younger daughter Lindsay that Karen would not be coming home.
2: She's being told the truth. You, you, You cannot keep truth away from children. And she cried. But I don't really think that she knows She's just missing Kevin at the moment because obviously she hasn't seen her for
1: a few days. Michelle Hadaway went on to say, What can you do? People try their best. They look after their children. But you can't keep a child locked up. Alongside her husband Lee, Michelle was confident the murderer was someone her daughter knew as she would not go off with a stranger. As her emotions overtook her, Michelle collapsed in tears. It had only been a few days since residents and local business owners had raised a few thousand pounds towards a cash reward when it was quickly increased to £8,000. The man in the blue car which was now being described as a Ford Sierra, was also mentioned again in the press. On Sunday, October 12th, he had possibly attempted to lure a young girl into his car when it was parked in Clevedon North Somerset, located over 170 miles northwest. The young girl was walking through a shopping centre car park when the driver asked her to get into his vehicle. Frightened, she ran away. The Avon and Somerset police alerted the Sussex authorities, providing them with details of the attempted abduction. The description of a man wearing a white t-shirt and glasses in his mid-twenties with light-coloured or ginger hair matched that of the person Sussex police sought. The feeling throughout the Moleskimer estate and beyond was anger that this person was still walking free locals were again interviewed with one man who remained nameless saying, this bastard must be caught. Then we must bring back capital punishment.
2: It's on your doorstep. It could have been your children. It could have been anybody's children in the whole self. And as I say, if money can help to catch these people or this person or whoever's done this thing, then I say, please give it. And if he's listening now, If he's listening to my voice, which he probably is, all I can say to him, hurry up and give yourself up, because when we catch you, and Brighton Police will catch you, no doubt about it, Brighton Police will get you, and you will not survive another year.
1: A reconstruction of the girls' last known movements took place in the middle of October, a week after they had gone missing.
2: Police are now pinning a lot of their hopes on a reconstruction tonight of the last few hours of Nicola and Karen. Two girls from the same area as the victims, 10-year-old Leanne Martin and 9-year-old Katrina Taylor, will wear identical clothes to the murder victims and follow their last known movements, ending up outside the gate of the park where the killings took place, the last sighting of the two youngsters. Detective Superintendent Bernie Wells says it could well bring up vital new evidence. I'm hopeful that people will come forward after seeing those two girls Reenacting what took place last Thursday, people's memories will be jogged and they will come and see us and tell us something.
1: Community leaders are urging the local people to watch tonight's reconstruction. It's hoped the 1,800 calls already taken by the police on the case will be increased after tonight as a clearer picture of what happened last Thursday night is built up. As the colour drained from his face, Barry Fellows, father to Nicola, watched on as the two girls holding hands traced Nicola and Karen's last known movements. The girls were followed by around 300 officers who stopped passers-by that watched the reconstruction. Those members of the public were asked if they had seen anything during the evening of Thursday, October 9th. As vehicles came to a halt due to the sheer volume of foot traffic, motorists on the A270 Lewis Road were questioned by officers, carrying specially prepared questionnaires. Barry Fellows said when he saw the two girls Katrina and Leanne, he told them they were courageous for helping with the reconstruction, before he burst into tears. A similar reconstruction was filmed for Crimewatch, and broadcast by the BBC in the hope a nationwide appeal would also help. Two young actresses were hired from a London stage school. One who played Karen was dressed in a green school sweatshirt, and the other dressed in a pink top played Nicola. A picture of Nicola Fellows in Karen Hadaway was pinned on a tree at the scene of the murders. Flyers were tacked to the windows of taxis, and placed between the pages of local newspapers. A video appeal was also made by the Sussex Police and was played throughout the video rental shops of Brighton. Detective Superintendent Bernie Wells, an officer who formed part of the investigation, was asked if he thought only one man was responsible, and if so, how did he possibly kill one child while restraining the other? were multiple killers involved. DS Wells confirmed they had discovered fibres in the shrubbery at the scene of the murder and had theories for how the murders could have occurred, though he was unwilling to share them at the time. After the reconstructions, police and the families were hopeful this might generate some positive interest in the case. But local Conservative councillor Una Gardner was interviewed and placed the blame squarely at the feet of the parents. She said, Why weren't they with the two children? As a mother, I would blame myself. These comments would lead to her resignation from a council committee on education, though she defended her remarks, saying they had been taken out of context. In the weeks that followed, the councillor appeared unfazed, unashamedly saying, Looking back, what I said was politically unwise. It's all right to think these things. There are many people who think as I do, but the mistake I made was to say them out loud. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where ScentAir comes in. With over three decades of experience, ScentAir leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces, and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now ScentAir is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate free, cruelty free, safe for families, and EcoVadis certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Us for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. As the final hours of the girls' lives were being pieced together, Sixteen-year-old Tracy Cox came forward as she saw the girls shortly before they died. She was a friend to Marion Stevenson. Along with Marion's boyfriend, they had visited the fellows' home earlier that day looking for Dougie Judd, the lodger. Tracy saw Nicola and Karen outside the fish-and-chip shop playing tag. The girls asked Tracy to get some conkers from the nearby park, though she refused telling them they should be heading home. Taking the hand of Karen, Tracy walked the pair to the entrance of the estate where they lived. She was babysitting at an address nearby, so as she walked away she told the girls to go home and waved goodbye. Tracy Cox also believed the person responsible was someone local, saying the girls would not have returned to the park on their own as they were frightened of the dark. Police had been door to door, visited almost two-thirds of the homes in the area and spoken to students at local schools to warn them of the dangers of talking to strangers when another witness came forward. She had been walking her dog on the evening of Thursday October 9th around 7.30pm when she saw two young males running from the corner of the wood around 100 yards from where the bodies of Nicola and Karen were found. The two males seen were described as being in their late teens or possibly early 20s. One was slightly taller than the other. They headed northeast from the park and when they arrived at the A27 Major Road, not to be confused with the A270, they each went in the opposite direction. When questioned about the sighting, head of the Sussex CID at the time Detective Chief Superintendent John McConnell confirmed that the witness sighting was significant and the police sought to speak with the two young males to rule them out of the inquiry.
2: About 7.30pm on Thursday the 9th, that's the night the girls went missing, two youths were seen running from the wild park and we're anxious to speak to these youths and ask that they contact us as soon as possible. We're also asking persons who saw any youths on the estate... At about that time, to inform us or anyone who had youths call at their addresses or arrived home about that time.
1: That same day, a report came from the desk of BBC's Crime Watch as someone had phoned in to say they had spotted the two youths at the scene with the girls. The caller said the girls had been, quote, skylarking about with youths they obviously knew. While the lead sounded promising, the next day the caller agreed to meet with an officer in Wild Park. The caller said they would be wearing a combat jacket accompanied by an Alsatian dog. Though they never turned up. Upon reviewing a recording of the phone conversation, it was noted the caller had a thick Scottish accent. When asked for some personal details, he was reluctant to provide any. Telling the operator his name was Dave before correcting himself, instead using Peter. Police were forced to admit that this individual might be a hoax caller and the information he provided was bogus. This left open the possibility that the youth seen near the scene later on the night of the murders might not have had anything to do with the crime. As plans of an early joint funeral were being made, where the girls were to be buried side by side, the parents of the murdered children instead decided the money raised for the families should go back to the estate and the residents who had been so supportive, coming together in their time of need. But that feeling of wanting to give something back would be turned to further heartbreak, as during the inquest into the children's deaths, Nicola and Karen's families were told by coroner Dr Donald Gooding that an early funeral for each of the young schoolgirls would not be possible. The investigation to track down the killer was still ongoing, and even if they were caught, the person or people responsible were within their rights to ask for an additional post-mortem, further delaying the release of the bodies. As detectives investigated the potential involvement of the youths running from the scene, officers were still keen to track down the blue vehicle spotted near Wild Park. Appeals were frequent, with no let-up in the investigation. The near 13,000 statements recorded and messages received during the first two weeks of the investigation were catalogued and taken to London to be fed into the police national computer, a system used extensively by law enforcement across the UK, allowing the user to cross-examine large amounts of information en masse. But despite the addition of this new technology and a reward that had ballooned to £12,000, it seemed to everyone but the police, that the killer would go unpunished. Almost a month after Nicola and Karen were found, the police finally had someone in custody who they questioned for 51 hours before they were released on bail. While the individual's name was not disclosed to the media, he was described simply as a young man. Whether this individual was one of the youths spotted running from the scene, it was unclear at the time. Items were taken from his home and sent for analysis. The youth then disappeared from the area as rumours started to circulate. It was also unclear if his disappearance meant he had been involved or police simply had the wrong person. Maybe he didn't want to be caught up in a case of mistaken identity if citizens decided to take matters into their own hands. The questioning of the young man who was a Brighton local was quickly followed up by reports of the officers working the case, heading over 300 miles to County Durham in the north of England. The person they wished to speak to ran a market stall and also sold ice cream in Stanley, a civil parish in the north of County Durham. A spokesman from the police incident room told the press, we can confirm our officers have been investigating in the Durham area. We are following a certain line of inquiry in the northeast and other parts of the country. A detective in the county Durham area has been collating information on this inquiry. The investigation was now spanning not only Brighton and all of Sussex, but the entire country. With the crime still making national headlines and police desperate to find the person responsible, it was reported that the brother-in-law of British television personality Esther Ranson had been questioned concerning the murders. Nigel Vincent, a brother to Esther Ranson's husband Desmond Wilcox, was on probation for sex offences against children. He had reportedly been charged after offering money to two boys aged 14 and 15 during 1985. Although police wanted to know Vincent's movements on the day of October 9th, 1986, Desmond Wilcox told the press his brother was simply being questioned for elimination purposes. This did indeed appear to be the case, as no further action was taken following the interview. It seemed to the public at least that the police were clutching at straws. But maybe they knew more than they were letting on. On December 3rd, 1986, someone was charged with the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. 20-year-old Russell Bishop from Stevens Road in the Hollandine area of Brighton appeared before a Hove magistrate accused of murdering both the schoolgirls. At five foot five inches tall and weighing just over ten stone, he did not fit the profile of the monster the press had been writing so much about. Bishop, with his fair hair and thin moustache, had worked occasionally as a roofer and as a sideline to supplement his income, he re-sprayed cars. He was a keen user of his CB radio, going under the monikers Panda Bear or Silver Bullet. He lived on Stevens Road with his partner Jenny Johnson and their son. Stevens Road was about one and a half miles southwest of Newick Road, where the girls had lived. As the charges were laid in a brief seven-minute hearing, Bishop stood handcuffed to a police officer, with another in close proximity. He never spoke, dressed in a blue zip-up jacket, grey trousers and black shoes, as he was addressed in the dock by the court clerk. They said, on or about October 9th 1986, he murdered Nicola Elizabeth Christine Fellows and Karen Jane Michelle Hadaway. Counsel for Bishop told the court that his client would not be applying for bail at this time, but quote, strenuously denies the offences. Russell Bishop, who was unemployed at the time, was told he would remain in custody until a bail hearing at the start of the following year. There were rumours circulating he knew the fellow's family and had even been part of the search team that went to look for the girls. There was little mentioned in the press as reporting restrictions were put in place. Barry Fellows, who was friends with Russell Bishop, told reporters, My heart goes out to his family, because they are all nice people. While Russell Bishop was on remand, His solicitor Ralph Himes received several calls from a young girl who told him she had evidence proving his client's innocence. Himes, a leading criminal defence solicitor who was no stranger to publicity, having represented both the Kray Twins and serial killer Dennis Nielsen, fed the information to the police. Detectives, along with Bishop's legal team, sought to track down this mystery individual But in spite of their best efforts, she never called again. She reportedly sounded terrified and only gave her first name. During a further remand hearing towards the end of January, Russell Bishop briefly interrupted the proceedings, telling the court that the young female witness had evidence to exonerate him. "'I would like this witness to come forward,' he said. "'I am innocent of all charges.' And she can prove I am innocent. A court clerk told Bishop to be quiet and to raise his concerns through his solicitor. As his voice began to falter, Bishop responded I'm sorry, but it's my bloody neck up here. I am innocent, and I want that girl to come forward as soon as possible and me out of here. On February 4th, 1987, a funeral service was held for Nicola and Karen, who were buried in coffins side by side. Two white marble slabs engraved with the girls' names and a small angel standing between them marked the spot. The engraving reads, There's a place in our hearts for you alone, a part of our life no one can own. Deep in our hearts your memory we treasure, loving you always, forgetting you never. Go to God, sleep safe in his arms, and carry with you your bright young charms. Sleep forever in his loving embrace, with all your childlike qualities and grace. More
2: than a hundred mourners lined the streets of Morse as the 13-car cortege arrived, led by one car with the word Nicky written in pink and blue flowers, the other with Karen written in red flowers. Both mothers had to be helped into the church in tears while both fathers joined the pallbearers carrying the cream-coloured coffins inside. During the moving 40-minute service, Father Marcus Ronchetti spoke of the girls' short lives. They gave us laughter and love and smiles. And then that terrible tragedy, those gifts were snatched away from us.
1: Following a service at the Church of St Andrew located on the Mallscombe estate, Nicola and Karen were buried at Brighton's Bear Road Cemetery. Mourners sang All Things Bright and Beautiful. Michelle Hadaway's face was swollen from the endless tears that flowed down her cheeks. Before the song finished, she left the service unable to continue. Susan Fellows, Nicola's mother, made it to her daughter's graveside. She collapsed, unable to bear such a tragic loss. Police officer Eric McIntosh was interviewed after the service.
2: Today's been very
1: quiet. We, um,
2: we obviously tried to get it clear for them, but um, it has. It's been very quiet. There was a lot of people out on the road that I think felt that they shouldn't come to the service, but it was there for a all. The
1: next day, at a bail hearing, Further details of the evidence police had against Russell Bishop was revealed as reporting restrictions on the case were lifted. While there were no traces of blood or saliva, police had submitted evidence relating to what was described as a suspect sweater, discovered just under a mile from the location where the girls were found. Fibers from the item were discovered on the girls' clothing. Despite defence counsel for Russell Bishop Charles Conway resolute in his insistence that there was no evidence linking his client to the crime, Bishop was denied bail. As the case progressed through the courts, a committal hearing in front of three magistrate judges was required to determine whether there was sufficient evidence to go to trial. The committal hearing process would be abolished in England during 2013 but back in 1987, the sufficiency of evidence would need to be determined before a case was passed to the Crown Court. Witness testimony placed Bishop at the scene shortly before the two schoolgirls went missing. Bishop was then spotted again an hour or so later leaving the park around 6.30pm by two brothers that knew him. Robert Owen acting on behalf of the Crown at Hove Magistrates Court said the point at which he was seen is only 330 yards from the point where he had been seen by the park keeper what did he do in that hour or hour and a quarter according to robert owen bishop could not account for his whereabouts at the time owen confirmed the girls had been killed where their bodies had been found and were taken there by someone known to them The circumstances of the discovery were relayed to the magistrates and the location where the bodies were found on October 10th was described as a cave within vegetation. It is a reasonable inference that the girls were not taken to the cave by force, Robert Owen said. The evidence is entirely consistent with them having been taken there by someone they knew. Owen told the court that Bishop was familiar with the schoolgirls. They knew the defendant well and had on occasion been out with him, Owen said. A pathologist's report confirmed that the girls had died following compression to the neck. Still, there were no physical markings that indicated a struggle, other than a bruise to Nicola's face. There had been signs of sexual assault before and after death. Michelle Hadaway, Karen's mother, recalled to the magistrates the last time she saw her daughter, who had been to school on October 9th. When Karen didn't return home from playing outside with her friend, Michelle started to worry as her daughter would never usually stay out late and was afraid of the dark. Karen's parents searched the streets before moving to the seafront. As the search continued through the night and into the next day, Russell Bishop asked for an item of Karen's clothing so his dog, Misty, might be able to track the girl's scent. Later that afternoon on October 10th, Michelle started to hear a commotion. Suddenly there were police swarming across the park and a helicopter overhead, Michelle said. Bishop was close to the scene where the girls were found and Karen's mother Michelle shouted at him, asking what had happened. All Bishop did was raise his hand and place it over his face. There was disquiet in the court throughout Michelle's testimony. Her head was bowed low for most of the proceedings. She was clearly distressed. Michelle, who was pregnant when Karen went missing, had only recently given birth to a baby girl. Russell Bishop was the first person officers visited when they were searching for the missing girls. They knocked on his door in the early morning hours of October 10th. He was asked if he knew the girls. He said he did. Bishop was then asked when was the last time he had seen them. He replied, When I was walking home from Malscombe last night, I saw them at about five o'clock talking to the parkkeeper at the entrance to Wild Park more officers arrived at the address on Stevens Road later that morning to ask Russell Bishop more questions. He explained that he knew the girls through Nicola's father Barry as they had played football together and knew Karen's father Lee as they had been out fishing together. On the morning of Thursday, October 9th, Russell Bishop said he had been bait digging, but while travelling in his car, a Ford Escort, The vehicle broke down on Ditchling Road around a mile from his home. Officers asked where the car was now. Bishop said he had sold it for scrap later that month. He confirmed he had been to the fellow's home on the afternoon of October 9th to visit a friend Dougie Judd, though he was not in. Bishop could not confirm if it was Nicola that answered the door. As Bishop was in the presence of the mother to his child, as he spoke to officers, he made no mention of his sixteen-year-old girlfriend Marian Stevenson, who he had been sleeping with for eight months. He went to the fellow's home that afternoon with her and Tracy Cox. Bishop said he had initially travelled to Newick Road to discuss repairs to his mother's car, although the person he sought was not in, so instead he went to the fellow's home to see his friend who was lodging there. We're not in the company of his partner. Bishop said he then planned to meet his girlfriend Marion Stevenson at 6pm, along with seeing the person who would repair his mother's car. However, the arranged meeting with Marion never took place. And bizarrely, Bishop had told Marion that Jenny Johnson, his partner, was in hospital with stomach pains. This was not true. She was at work. When later asked about this, Marion Stevenson would say, he was always lying to me. He made excuses all the time when he did turn up. Bishop first told officers that later in the afternoon, he recalled walking towards Barkham Road, crossing the A270 Lewis Road to Wild Park. He confirmed he saw the park keeper, a man walking his dog, and the two girls, Nicola and Karen. After a conversation with the parkkeeper, Bishop again crossed Lewis Road, going to the newsagent on Barkham Road and attempting to purchase a newspaper, but realised he had no money. He said he then made his journey home. He recrossed the road to Wild Park down Lewis Road on the park side, then turning right by Mallscombe Library to Mollscombe Railway Station. He walked under a railway viaduct and then onto a footpath leading into Hollingdean and then home to Stevens Road. This was incredibly close to the tall grass where the Pinto sweatshirt would be found early the next morning, but Bishop denied it was his. He said he could not remember what time he got home, though his statement recounted that it was reasonably light outside. He washed the clothes he was wearing and cooked himself a meal. Bishop said his partner Jenny Johnson arrived home from her cleaning job sometime around 8 or 8.30. While officers interviewed Bishop at his home on Stevens Road, they asked him what he had been wearing on the day Nicola and Karen were murdered. His partner Jenny Johnson was in the room and interrupted, telling officers Bishop had on a blue top and jeans, which she retrieved from the kitchen. Bishop confirmed this to be the case. The day after the girls went missing, he volunteered to be part of the search party. Along with two friends, one of which was Dougie Judd, Bishop met Michelle, Karen's mother. Bishop asked her if she had an item of clothing from Karen which his dog Misty could track a scent from. The dog had been trained to track by Bishop's mother, who was a dog trainer by trade. Michelle provided him with a white coat Karen had been wearing to school on the day she was murdered. The three men discussed searching an area of land near Hollingbury Golf Course by Ditchling Road on the opposite end of Wild Park. Along with Karen, they searched the area but did not find anything. A little after 2pm, Bishop, his dog Misty and Dougie Judd went to help search in Wild Park. They were met by Police Constable Christopher Markham. Bishop was carrying a bag, inside of which was Karen Hadaway's white coat that he had been given by her mother. PC Markham was told by Bishop that Misty was a tracking dog, although it appeared to the officer that this was not the case, as Misty seemed to continually lose concentration. PC Markham almost felt as though Bishop was leading the dog, rather than the other way around. They arrived at a spot approximately 150 yards from the Wild Park Pavilion. At this point, the officer felt perhaps it was wise the group should stop and rejoin a broader organised search. Russell Bishop told PC Markham that it was a good idea, as he would, quote, hate to find the girls, especially if they had been messed up. PC Markham would note that this comment seemed strange, as he was expecting the girls to turn up alive. Russell Bishop and Dougie Judd then left and walked the dog through the park before they bumped into another officer, PC Paul Smith, who was also searching Wild Park. Bishop asked the officer what he thought had happened. When PC Smith said he wasn't sure, Bishop responded, I reckon they've either gone north, or if they're here, they are finished. Well, Brighton has some strange people in it, responded the officer. Yeah, anyway, I'm not searching anymore, said Bishop. When asked why, he replied, I mean, the old Bill wouldn't believe it, would they? Well, if I found the girls and if they were done in, I'd get the blame. I'd get nicked. No, said PC Smith. Obviously you would have to give a statement, but that doesn't follow. The officer was unsure of what to make of the comment. The conversation was interrupted by a young man reportedly saying, We found them. Somebody has found them. As the men followed the young man towards the site of the discovery, Russell Bishop was some strides ahead, but was told by the officer not to touch anything. When they arrived at the scene, Bishop, unprompted, made an attempt to navigate the ivy towards the two girls but had to be physically held back before going any further. P.C. Smith carefully made his way through some overhanging vegetation, crawling towards the spot and found Nicola and Karen who were clearly dead. Police then questioned Bishop about what he had seen when the girls were found. He said, I saw lying on her back on the ground was Nicola Fellows. Huddled next to her was Karen Hadaway. I cannot recall what position she was lying in, but her head was resting on Nicola's stomach. I felt for a pulse in the neck of both girls, but there was none. They were both very cold and stiff to the touch, and it was quite obvious to me they were dead. In his interview, Bishop then went on to describe some blood-flecked foam on Nicola's lips. Bishop voiced his concern he would be implicated in the crime. There was no reason for him to make this statement, as he had not been prompted. As officers continued their investigation, they interviewed Russell Bishop several times, even asking him to retrace his steps he was asked did he recall waving or acknowledging anyone he knew other than the park keeper, the man walking his dog or the two young girls. He said he did not. He was also asked why he would wash his clothes as soon as he got in. Bishop told officers he fell into some dog faeces on his way home. As he could not find any other clothes to wear, he decided to bathe, have his dinner and watched TV before his partner came home. He said he recalled watching the last scene in EastEnders. He was annoyed that he caught the last five minutes. This raised some questions in the minds of detectives as the television programme started at 7.30 and ended half an hour later, putting the time at 7.55pm. After this interview... Bishop was called in again and asked to go over his previous statement, but now his story changed. He was now saying he did not feel for a pulse, nor did he notice the bodies were stiff. Asked why he would lie, he told officers that he said this to, quote, "'Make myself look big and feel important.'" Before the cause of death had been announced, Bishop had told his girlfriend Marion that he had found Karen and Nicola cuddling. He claimed they had been strangled to death. There was no way of knowing this at that time, as this information had not been released. In a further interview, he was asked about the blood-flecked foam around one of the girl's lips, but Russell Bishop said he was guessing when he made this statement. Prosecutor Robert Owen seized on this comment during the committal hearing, proclaiming that Bishop had in fact seen the blood when he carried out the killing. Bishop was interviewed under caution at the end of October 1986. While he mentioned he planned to meet his teenage girlfriend Marion, this was not the case. After visiting the fellow's home looking for Dougie Judd, Bishop was now saying he went to Sussex University car park to attempt to steal a Ford Escort. Then, instead of seeing Marion, he wanted to smoke drugs. He said this was in fact the reason for going to Morscombe that afternoon. Bishop insisted that he did not tell police initially, as he did not want to get his dope dealer in trouble. Bishop said he got to the address of someone called Angie on Ringma Road around 5.40pm. He had seen the girls around 20 minutes earlier. After smoking the drugs in a public toilet, he told officers he went straight home. But what about the newsagent, the police would ask, where Bishop said he had tried to buy a paper? He said this was a lie. Bishop was adamant he was home at 6.30pm before it was being said the two children were killed, though he did pass the railway station close to where the blue pinto sweatshirt was found. Angie Cutting, the person Bishop mentioned, was tracked down, and while she acknowledged that she had sold drugs to Bishop in the past, she could not recall him coming to her home on October 9th. Bishop was sure he had, and Angie must have been mistaken. He then claimed he had received a visit at his home that evening on Stevens Road, from someone selling insurance. While police investigated the claim, they could find no one in the area who had visited the property at that time. Two insurance salesmen who had dealings with Bishop were interviewed, However, neither said they had seen Bishop on the evening of October 9th. One said they had visited his home at 4.30pm that day, but no one answered the door, and the other agent's car was in the garage, so they were unable to travel. This lack of corroborating evidence, along with someone close to Bishop providing a statement that he did in fact own the Pinto sweatshirt, prompted police to take action and press charges. At the committal hearing, Robert Owen, acting for the Crown, announced there was compelling forensic evidence linking Russell Bishop to the murders. Furthermore, Owen told the court that at one point Nicola had called Bishop's girlfriend a slag through the letterbox after the couple had called at the fellow's home a few hours before the girls were killed. As the hearing continued, 18-year-old Kevin Rowland told the court how he found the bodies. Along with his friend Matthew Marchant, they had joined the search for the missing girls after they finished work. They had at first searched an area of the park called Jacob's Ladder when they were seen by Russell Bishop and his friend Dougie Judd. Bishop shouted, Any luck yet? No, they responded. As they began wading through the thick undergrowth and dense ivy, they noticed some broken branches as if someone had made a path. Overhanging vegetation made the route challenging, but undeterred, Kevin continued. As he crouched down, veering to the left and following the path, he noticed something in the vegetation. He saw a body, a hand, then the side of a face. He shouted, Shit, I've found them. From a distance of 15 feet, he dared not go any closer. Kevin told his friend Matthew Marchant to raise the alarm. Marchant ran through the vegetation meeting PC Paul Smith, Russell Bishop, his dog Misty and Dougie Judd. Taking Matthew Marchant's lead, the men followed him to the cave with Bishop further ahead than P.C. Smith. When Bishop arrived, he tried to head straight to the girls, but was stopped by Kevin Rowland who put his arm out, telling Bishop not to go near them. When P.C. Smith caught up, he asked how are they, and Bishop said, they're fucking dead. P.C. Smith could barely make out the girls in the undergrowth, but after he managed to crawl through the vegetation, he saw them. Nicola was lying on her back with a bruise to her face. There appeared to be blood which looked frothy, though he could only make this out when he was extremely close to the bodies. Despite the injuries to their necks, they both appeared to be sleeping. P.C. Smith took the girls' pulses. They were cold to the touch. At precisely 4.21pm, he radioed for help. I've found the bodies, he said. There's two of them, and they are both dead. Kevin Rowland told the court he was so traumatised by the discovery that he was prescribed tranquilizers as he went into a state of shock. Emotions on the Mulscombe estate were running high. Charles Conway, working on behalf of Russell Bishop, made an application requesting that defence witnesses would not have to provide their full names in open court. This request was made following an incident where a stone was thrown through the window of one of those people due to give evidence on behalf of the defence. Conway confirmed that the witness was determined to come to court addressing the judges saying, I'm sure you would not want a rabble to prevent decent, honest people from coming forward and giving evidence on Russell Bishop's behalf. Witnesses for the defence would not be the only ones targeted during the legal proceedings as some people thought the wrong man was being prosecuted. Barry and Susan Fellows were due to move into to a new council house following the murder of their daughter. Barry and Susan started to make the house feel like a home, painting and putting up curtains before the move date, when they returned one day to find the property had been sprayed in graffiti. Covered in what was described as hate slogans, the couple were too scared to move. The graffiti read... Fellows, out, you are a murderer, a child molester and a child killer. Barry Fellows later told reporters, My wife cried when she saw the graffiti. This has broken her heart. The pair abandoned their plans to move and asked the housing department in Brighton if they could stay in their old home. Barry Fellows was not highly thought of in Mallscombe. He had previous convictions for burglary, for which he had spent time in prison. And on the night that Nicola went missing, instead of searching with his wife, he was indoors eating his dinner. While he argued that Nicola had run off before, so he wasn't initially worried, hence his calm demeanour at the time, this had made him a target. The three magistrates, who would ultimately decide if the case should go to trial, headed to Wild Park, walking the steep wooded slope towards the location where the girls' bodies were found. Russell Bishop had insisted he wanted to travel with them, along with barristers and court officials, but on the morning of the visit to the scene, following provision of a police van being made available, Bishop instructed his counsel Charles Conway that he did not want to revisit the area. After all, he was innocent, he insisted. After evidence was presented, the three magistrates took around three hours to find there was a case to answer to, and Russell Bishop was committed for trial. He would remain in custody. From the dock in tears, Bishop shouted, I'm innocent of killing those girls. I hope you realize that. Outside the courtroom, his mother collapsed into the arms of a friend as Bishop's defense counsel, Charles Conway, told reporters that there was a very strong chance. His client would be acquitted based on the evidence that was to be put before a jury. This is the end of episode 27. To hear more about the case of the babes in the wood, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Information on this episode can be found in the show notes or on our website. They walk among us, Planning
0: for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.